podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 80. Otto III is a Roman LARPer. I hope you enjoyed the series of episodes we released for the month of Germany. It's always a favorite project of mine, and I was really glad that we had quite a few interviews. For the rest of the year, we will have two episodes. This one being the first one, of of course. But the episode in December will be sooner than the end of the month, as I will not be at home for the usual release time. I will be in Berlin, and I'm really excited for that. So please, if you have any ideas for places to see or go to during the New Year's time, please send it to my email at podcastsongermany at gmail.com. I would love to explore some of the local spots of the city rather than just the tourist points. I've been here before. I've seen all the cool shiny stuff. Show me the real stuff. After that, we'll be back to our normal release with the last Tuesday of the month in January. And I do apologize for this episode for being late. I was trying to confirm some of the sources, and I just ran out of time before the release date. Okay, with that out of the way, let us continue on to our show. So last time, we had dealt with the Regency of Otter III, who technically had been on the throne before this episode began, but, you know, being so young, they weren't going to really give him the reins of power. He came to the throne at the age of three, and of course, you know, everyone's crazy about having the same family be running the empire, but they're not crazy about having a young kid run the empire. And so it was up to first this guy named Henry, who literally had tried to overthrow the father so many times, and then followed up by the mom and grandmother of Otto III. All tried their hand at ruling the empire while Otto III learned basically how to, you know, wipe himself, how to speak, how to be an emperor, you know, the basic things all kids learn how to be. But now the year is 995, and it's finally time for Otto to take charge. And considering he lasts until the year 10,002, you can really expect that he will last for quite a long time. Now, surprise, surprise, Otto III is going to be immediately drawn into the ulcer that is Roman politics. As one of my favorite listeners has said, I'm really tired of hearing about how there's the emperors and then there's Rome. And I hate to tell you, We're about to get drawn into Rome yet again because for this time period, Rome is the key to the empire. Don't know why. Uh, It's clearly Germany that is the key for the Holy Roman Empire. But for the emperors, they see Rome as the key. And it's going to serve as this center of conflict for many of these emperors, uh, especially before Otto III. Now, after Otto III, we're going to start seeing a downswing in the involvement of Rome. Thank goodness. But up to Otto III, yeah, Rome is very important. It's very important to have that in the empire in order to maintain said empire. Now, during Otto III's regency, the Byzantines and their agents in the peninsula had made great strides in weakening the HRE's power. They had imprisoned their pope. They excluded their aristocracy and rulers from certain cities, including Rome, and basically had pushed the Holy Roman influence further and further north. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Roman Empire still didn't technically have their thumb over Rome and didn't have it over certain cities in central and southern Italy, but they were nowhere near as powerful before the Regency. The Byzantines' agents had successfully concluded a very powerful Cold War against the Holy Roman Empire. Occasional fights break out, sure, but the Byzantines and the Holy Roman Empire maintained the peace while their agents are busy sabotaging one another. And the Byzantines are doing a pretty dang good job about it until Otto III comes to power. 
Now, one of the most successful agents for the Byzantines belongs to the Crescentius family, who in 984 imprisoned John XIV in Hadrian's tomb, of all places, because that was one of the key points of power for this family. And either thankfully for John the 14th or unthankfully for John the 14th, he did not stay there for too long, uh, mainly because he's poisoned or starved to death. Not 100% sure on it. The details are very sketchy because no one's going to come up and straight up admit that they murdered the Pope. But John the 14th died a very suspicious death, to say the least. And that leaves us with our next man, Boniface the Seventh. He is now the Pope. Now, he takes over when John is imprisoned before he dies. So he's technically an anti-pope because, you know, he's replacing a living pope that had not been retired properly. And so there is quite a bit of criticism thrown at Boniface uh, by uh, people who are loyal to the empire and fear that this is going to cause the regency to come down hard on them. However, the Crescentius family plays it rather well. And Junior, Crescentius II, I'm just going to call him Junior from now on because it's much easier than trying to keep saying that name over and over again and knowing, just knowing that I'm mispronouncing it despite how many times I've sat there trying to pronounce it correctly. Anyway, Junior takes the title of Patrician of the Roman and effectively becomes the ruler of Rome with his puppet strings dangling over Boniface. He will play a key role in isolating the population from the empire and from isolating the pope from political power, which is very, very important for the Byzantines who don't want the pope to have all the sway over the people. But he will also do a really great job under the regency of balancing his allegiance between the Byzantines and the Romans to make sure that he stays in power. He's a true master of the diplomatic game when it comes to this. And when everyone is busy thinking about the politics, they realize that Junior here, he's the man to keep in charge because he keeps both parties semi-happy. He keeps Rome peaceful, which is important to the Holy Roman Empire. And for the Byzantines, he keeps the Pope under control, meaning that the Western Church can't be such a thorn in the side of the Byzantines. This is all going to change with Otto III coming to power. Now, it's not going to start off that way immediately because Otto III is going to be really busy trying to deal with the Great Slavic Wars. We mentioned that last episode. Uh, basically, it's going to be up to him and the Poles to finish it off. The Slavs had risen up in rebellion and they had routed the Empire's forces. Uh, re taken uh, modern-day Brandenburg, had pushed... Uh, the Poles out of the Danzig area, pushed them further south, uh, was threatening uh, what would be modern-day Warsaw. It was a great uprising. And frankly, from the sources, it sounded like the Empire and the Poles had it coming because they had really mistreated the Slavs in the region. Now, by the time Otto III comes to power, this rebellion has lost a lot of its momentum. It's finally been uh, slowed down. The Poles and the uh, Germans are working together and are figuring out a way of cornering and eliminating this rebellion. But for the first year of his reign, he's busy dealing with this. Now, eventually, he will get involved in Rome about five to six months later. The reason why Rome is so important, and I had to give you that backstory, is because Otto III really, really, really loves the Roman Empire. 
and he really, really loves the church. And he wants to recreate the Roman Empire with the emperor serving not only as the emperor, but as the head of the Catholic Church. So naturally, it's very important for him that he keeps tabs on the Italian peninsula. And he's waiting for an opportunity to get involved there, which he's about to get. Everyone kind of knows that Otto III has a thing for the church, that he wants to be loyal, that he's very religious. And so Pope John XV, who takes over after the death of Boniface, kind of thinks that now's his chance to get out under the thumb of Junior, the man who's been ruling Rome for the last decade. So he sends a letter to the emperor begging for him to come and take away Crescentius's power. He really wanted to reassert the power of the church, and he saw Otto III as the perfect person to let him do so. Unfortunately for him, Otto III is not going to be that man. And so, about six months after taking control of the throne, he marches south with a small army to go and meet with the Pope and see what can be done about this whole situation in Rome. Now, unfortunately for the Pope, this is way too late, as he will die in April of 996, while Otto is still in northern Italy. And it's really here, during this critical moment, that Crescentius makes a mistake. And to be fair, he didn't really have many options to begin with, but this was really not going to work out in his favor the way that he hoped. You see, in the past, for the last two emperors, Crescentius had played a key role in choosing who was going to be the next pope. That way he could keep a thumb over him and make sure that they obeyed him rather than the other way around. However, he believed that if he surrendered this right to Otto III, then he could keep his position and his power in Rome and sacrifice nothing more than a simple choice while pleasing his emperor and maintaining the peace that he had maintained for this last decade. Now, while this had worked well with the empress and the regents of the past, because they were really wanting to keep Rome peaceful and technically under their thumb while they waited for the next emperor to come, Otto III was not going to be that willing. He wanted to rule in his own right. So Crescentius Jr. sends word to Otto III saying, hey, the Pope is dead. Long live the next Pope. But who's going to be that next Pope? All right, would you please choose who you would like to be the next Pope? And Jr. just really hoped that by reaching out to him, It would buy time to allow him to secure his position in Rome and keep the peace. But Otto III acted fast and very, very firm with his decision. He barely thought about it before he selected his own 23-year-old cousin, Bruno, which will actually make Bruno to be the first German-born pope. So, you know, great for the church for, you know, deciding to leave the peninsula and choose someone from the wildlands north of Rome. And he will take the name Gregory V, by the way. Now, Gregory was welcomed with open arms by Junior, who believed that he could still hold power in the city, despite the fact that the new pope was loyal to the emperor and blood relative to the emperor. But Gregory knew of the plans of Otto III and agreed to his plans and immediately started to set up shop to his liking, in order to welcome Otto III and destroy Junior's position of power in Rome. Gregory had just made it into Rome, just started setting up 
and is home when Otto arrives with that large army that was supposed to come and help Gregory's predecessor. Now, technically, Otto was just coming to be crowned by the new pope, get his blessing, and everything seemed to be on the up and up. But he still has that massive army outside the city who's only going to obey the will of their emperor. Now, Junior realized that this was a really tight spot to be in and was very nervous and stayed at home, which is also another mistake because it made him look very suspicious. While he was doing this, a coup was planned against him. And on May 25th, Junior receives a note to come to St. Peter's to answer to a surprised court of justice. Now, not really a surprise surprise because word had reached Crescentius that this was going to happen. But still, it's supposed to be like, oh, oh no, where did this court come from? How, why is this happening now? So shocked, you gads. Anyway, May 25th, he arrives. And in front of the new pope, he is forced to give an account of his doings. Along with all of his fellow conspirators during the reign of Pope John the 15th. The main focus, of course, on his reduction of power of the papacy. Now, unable to defend himself effectively, Junior was immediately cowed and exercised from power. But Gregory really wanted to show some leniency because he'd just become Pope and the last thing you want to do as Pope is immediately start murdering people left and right. That's just a big no-no for most Popes. Not all Popes. We've talked about a few that had no problems killing their own predecessors in the past, but Gregory really wanted to set the example of what all popes should be. And so he let Junior off with a little slap on the wrist and say, hey, okay, it's done with. You can stay in Rome. You can live out in retirement. You know, you got plenty of funds. It's great. Um, you've learned your lesson. We're done here. But Junior is just not going to be happy about that. And he's going to bide his time. But for now, he's going to have to bide his time because Otto's here with a large army and he has plans. He wants to LARP, or live action roleplay, as a Roman emperor. He wants to rebuild the empire in all of its glory. He wants to be Caesar. And that's what he goes about doing for the next couple of months. His original plan is to set himself up as not only the political head, which he's done now, having been crowned by the new pope, but also as the religious head. That means expanding the religious communities with the blessing of the emperor, not the pope. Very important there. And also set up his own archbishops that answer to him and not the pope again. All this, of course, is being rubber stamped by his cousin, the new pope. Because Gregory's great to have this, grateful to have this position. He's like, you know what? Whatever you want, emperor, it's all yours. You got me in this position. You're secure in my position. So, yeah. Let's do this. Otto III also wanted to use this relationship with the new pope to rewrite the relationship that had been established by Otto I. Now, Otto I had originally kept some distinction between the emperor and the pope. He wanted to keep the two separate. If not balance them, then at least have clear distinctions on what could be done in the role of the pope versus the emperor. Otto III just began to delete many of these barriers in order to weaken the power of the papacy and to make it basically that the emperor was the head of the church. If you were the emperor, you were also the pope. 
There was no royal veto anymore. There was only the royal choice. So the papacy no longer had the partitions over them trying to run Rome. Now they had the Holy Roman Emperor trying to run the entire Catholic world. Now, this is going to increase some tensions between the Romans and their German overlords, and Junior's definitely going to be keeping an eye on this. But as long as Otto III stayed in Rome, there was no chance of any rebellion rising up. Now, at this point, Otto begins to move northwards because there were some issues among the northern Italians who were being basically provoked by the Byzantines to rise up against Otto. The Byzantines were not very happy that Otto was revitalizing the church in his own image and was fearful that basically this was going to see a new expansion of the empire into southern Italy. So best to distract the emperor up north. While Otto was out of town and actually going to be heading up north into Germany in a little bit, Junior decided now was the best time to act. Now, he'd been acting meekly, accepting the court decisions, staying at home. But he was also talking to people, getting the feel of the land, and realizing that now was as good a time as any to rise up in rebellion and overthrow the old pope. So in September of 997, Junior decides to launch his coup, attempting to capture the pope and imprison him. Unfortunately for him, Pope Gregory got word and fled Rome immediately, where he would hold court in Pavia and excommunicate Junior, which was immediately answered with Junior's own anti-pope, because, you know, that's just a go-to play among the Crescentius family. And this new pope, this anti-pope, had just arrived from Byzantium as an ambassador there, getting him the title of John XVI. This new anti-pope had very little support outside of Rome, and Byzantium was in no position to help. Meanwhile, the rest of Italy had already accepted the new pope overall, and just wasn't really wanting to get into a war with the emperor. They didn't like the emperor by no means. The fact that he was there causing all this problem was not a fun time, but they also didn't really want to get in war. Meanwhile, Otto III had not left Italy, and so he just turned around and marched back towards Rome with his army. While he's on his way back, he joined forces with Gregory and forced the city to surrender. John tried to flee the city, while Crescentius retreated back to Castile Santa Angelo and prepared for a siege. Uh, John did not get to escape. Uh, poor man was captured and tortured for his crimes. Not only was he tortured, uh, but he was mutilated. His nose and his ears were cut off, and his eyes and his tongue were torn out before he was made to go through Rome riding a donkey. He would survive all this, by the way. Uh, brutal to survive all that, but apparently he did, and he will live until the year 10,001 in a monastery. Junior was not going to live for his betrayal. In April of 998, the Castillo will fall, and he will be executed, with his corpse actually hanging from the Monte Mario. The partitions have been dealt a severe blow, and the papacy seems to be on the rise, even though now the papacy is the Holy Roman Emperor. But still, you know, it is a change of power in the city. Now that all this is taken care of, 
Otto is actually going to return to the north. Not to go to Germany much, mind you. I mean, yes, he's going to see his people and say, hey, thanks for sending all those troops down there for so long and paying all those taxes to me for so long just to waste it in Italy. It's really cool. But he's actually going to the east because the Slavs are still being a bit of an issue. While he's there, he's actually going to set up several important ramifications for Eastern Europe. So this is rather important for Eastern Europe and German history going on, but for the German people living at the time, they're like, well, okay, Emperor, I guess we'll see you never or whenever, you know, just drop by sometime. As he was leaving, he arranged for Rome to be rebuilt while he was gone. The plan was to build it in, of course, the old Roman way, with an imperial palace to be built on top of the Palatine Hill, and the restoration of the Roman Senate, along with changing many of the titles of the city government, such as the city prefect and patrician. While on his way out, Gregory died. Uh, did not last long. You know, there ends the first German pope. And he's immediately replaced by Otto's tutor, because, of course, he wants to keep it under his thumb. This is going to be Pope Sylvester II, which is a very odd name for a pope so far, if you can tell by the amount of times it's been used. Uh, it's not from the common list, such as John, which we were already on a 16th. But Sylvester is an important name because it is the first Pope Sylvester who helped Emperor Constantine the Great set up his Christian empire. Remember, Otto is a LARPer. So if he's going to be able to choose the name of the Pope, he's going to choose someone of importance from Roman history. And there you go. Why not Pope Sylvester to show the rebirth of the Christian Roman Empire? Now at this point, Otto is on his way up north, which means we need to backtrack just a little bit to discuss what's been happening in the east that's going to play such an important part in Otto's changing of Eastern Europe. In the year 997, so again, just a little backtracking, but still, in the year 997, Duke Boleslaw I of Poland sent Bishop Adelbright of Prague a request to go and set up a mission among the pagan Prussian tribes. Now, just like many early attempts to spread Christianity, this ended with the bishop's death. Christianity is just not welcomed by most tribes. Bolesaw, who had a great relationship with Otto III, thanks to his efforts in that Slavic rebellion we talked about at the beginning of the episode, and Otto's past relationship with Albert, who had served as his tutor, requested that Aldebert, the man who just died for trying to spread Christianity, be canonized for his efforts, which Otto, the new head of the church, gladly agreed to. This, by the way, will make Adalbert the first Slav to be canonized. Uh, so, you know, we are making great strides in the church around the year at 1000. And his body will be returned back to the Poles after they pay his weight in gold to the Prussians. Now, Boleslav uh, thanks Otto for his assistance, and this actually causes an unexpected relationship to bloom between the two of them. And because of this relationship, Otto decides to go and visit Boleslav. Now, his arrival was a bit surprising. It is the emperor. 
of not their emperor, a foreign emperor, technically. But the main reason for this visit was because of Otto's relationship with the now dead saint. Adalbert had been his tutor, and he wanted to pay his respects to the dead man. Now, whatever was going to happen next was going to be very important for Polish relationships with the Germans. Because if Boleslav really botched his job, just did an absolutely terrible job of playing host to this emperor, there's a good chance that the emperor would decide to invade him, to wipe out the duke and set up someone else under his thumb in the region. In the past, Poland had been too far to the east for the Germans to care. Charlemagne and all of his kin were too busy trying to deal with eastern Germany, and the Saxons had been really busy just basically trying to set up as the new ruling family. But now, Otto III really has a secure standing in Germany. I mean, we have not heard a single peep about the Germans during this entire time, and I do apologize about that. But anyway, we don't have much problems going on in Germany. Italy seems to be on its way of being secured. I mean, he does have the two popes back to back under his thumb. So yes, if Balasov really screws the pooch right now, this could mess everything up for Poland and its independence. Luckily enough for the Poles, he does a really good job of swaying the emperor to like him. Otto arrives in the year 1000, and Balasov is really welcoming. Uh, He has him there uh, to pay his respects, shows him the burial sites of Adalbert's, uh, praises heaps upon him, treats him with the utmost respect, shows him throughout the duchy, shows how well they're doing, and how they are trying to expand Christianity in the region, and really just wins the emperor over. They also decide to exchange gifts, the gifts being relics. And the emperor gives them a replica of his holy lance, which is part of the imperial regalia and a very important recognition of Boleslav's power in the region. In trade for St. Adalbert's, yes, the guy they just buried, his arm. It's just a very interesting thing to exchange, but you know what? That's that. So, you know, they exchange these gifts, and then they decide to set up some new bishoprics. And because Otto is acting as the Pope, well, of course they're going to get any bishops that they want. And this really establishes a strong bond between the two rulers, because Balasov is not only paying his respects to the emperor, but he pays respects to the emperor's friend, and he expands the power of the church, which at the moment is also the power of the emperor. The series of meetings that happened between Balasov and Otto III becomes known as the Congress of Giznio, and I'm super sorry about that pronunciation. And this Congress is very important in the history of Poland because this establishes the ecclesiastical independence of Poland, which with our, you know, papal emperor here is basically de facto freedom from the Germans and its empire. Very important in the history of Poland. Both Balasov and Otto will eventually leave Poland and they'll make their way back into Germany. And yay, Otto's back in Germany. Well, 
they will go and they'll have some great celebrations. They'll actually go to the grave of Charlemagne, and it's there where Palosov really wins over the heart of Otto. Um, they exchange uh, the most important bond between nobles at the time by tying their families together. Boleslav's son will marry the emperor's niece. Very important for Boleslav's family. This means they are now tied to the emperor's family and are basically secure from political threats. Not completely, but it's a good security. Now, this relationship between Boleslav and Otto would have played an important role in the continuation of Eastern European politics to this day had the emperor not literally died within the year. Most scholars agree that this relationship was only the beginning and that the ties between the Balasov family and the royal family would have deepened and would have secured the borders of Eastern Europe for quite some time if Otto had made it just a couple more years. But the fact that he barely lasts a year after this means that this relationship is going to end up going nowhere between the two. And it's going to be quite a challenge between Balasov and the next rulers. Now, after leaving Balasov, Otto goes back to Italy. Because, of course, he's not going to stay in Germany, you know, his home territory. He's going to go back to Italy. He's got to get back to LARPing as the Roman Empire. He wants to establish the Roman Empire. He's got to be there for it. While there, he immediately spends time finishing up the palace, making it look tidy and neat, trying to get it back into that ancient Roman look while, you know, still being pretty comfortable. And it's during this time that Rome is just really tired of Otto. Uh, this is costing a lot of money and a lot of time. And it's a real drain on the region. Now, funnily enough... It's also a drain on the Germans because a lot of riches, a lot of taxes, and basically most of the culture and the arts is stripped from Germany and taken to the palace in Rome because that's where the emperor is going to be. That's where the art and the culture is going to be too. And so we do see a lot of the work that should have been left in the castle from the previous emperors being taken to Rome. Now, despite the fact that, you know, there should be a big boom for Rome to be the, the new capital, they were really tired of this outsider ruling with these German soldiers. They wanted to get back to their own rulers. They were happy to have their partitions offing off pope after pope and installing their new popes. They were happy to have the constant backstabbing families because it was their families. They were their people. It's not these outsiders from across the mountains that they can barely understand through thick accents. But it's not just Rome that's having this problem with the Germans being a, such a pain to them. All of Italy is complaining about the Germans spending way too much time in their cities. They need to go home. Thank you. It's time for us to rule ourselves. And this is seen in the year 1001 when the city of Tibur, a local political rival of Rome, rises up in rebellion. Now, at first, this made the Romans really happy. Not because they're like, yes, look at that city. They're rising up in rebellions against the Germans. We should do it too. No, this is still very fragmented 
city-focused Italy. They were happy because they're like, yeah, Tibber, you're about to get your butt handed to you by the emperor. Their army is going to go over there, destroy that city, and then we're going to be the political masterminds of the region. And so Rome was all super excited. Tibber's raising up in revolt. They're going to get their butt handed to them. It's going to be great. But the emperor, trying to rule as the emperor of the Roman Empire, didn't want his what should be his home region up in rebellion against him. And so he marched an army over there to deal with it. But as soon as they surrendered, Otto gave him the light hand. He wanted peace. He didn't want a war. And for the Romans, this is worse than betrayal. This is just outright evil. How dare the city get away with that? They shouldn't have been able to get away with that rebellion. No, 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 no. You should have punished them, wiped them out. Again, they didn't really care about the fact that they risen up in rebellion against the Germans. They just cared about the fact that the rival got away scot-free. And so Rome decided to go up into rebellion themselves because they weren't going to just sit there and allow their rivals to get away scot-free like that. And they actually surprised the Germans. Uh, they will drive Otto out of the city. Uh, he is barely able to escape his palace before the conspirators are upon him. And Otto returns to the capital and plans to put it to siege. But again, he doesn't want to burn his home region, or, you know, the home region in his mind, down to the ground. And he is able to establish a peaceful settlement. Now, this peace is very unstable, and no one's comfortable with it. The emperor realizes that these people aren't happy with him. The people realize that they're not happy with him. And the German soldiers are just like, can we go home? We've been here for ages. And so Otto stays away from Rome for a bit. He doesn't want to be caught in the city again in case they rise up in rebellion. He's also keeping his troops close to him because he doesn't want to be caught out in the open either. So Otto goes north and he actually deals with the Hungarians who have sent their king Stephen, or Stephen, to discuss a new archdiocese. Which, you know, as the Pope Emperor of the Empire, Otto's gladly going to give it to him because he wants to spread the religion, which is going to spread his power. After dealing with this and getting some support from the Hungarians in trade, he will march south back to Rome in order to winter at his palace. This is also basically to ensure his rule in the city because now he's got the support and the manpower that he needs in order to keep the city under his thumb. But winter hits pretty hard on the peninsula and he gets ill on the way back. He just gets downright sick. And he's forced to stop his advance in late January of 1002. And while he is waiting for the winter to pass, he gets really sick and he passes away. By the way, he is still so young that as he is laying dying in bed, he receives a letter from the Byzantines. The letter states that his bride-to-be, Princess Zoe, has just left the capital to come marry him. That's right. He is so young that he wasn't even considered old enough to be wed. They didn't have children. He didn't have any successors. 
for all intents and purposes, for the royal bloodline, this man was a virgin and he just killed over. He was just too young to die, which naturally, of course, he did. And that ends the reign of Otto III. He spent very little of his short reign in Germany. We mentioned it once, really, and that was just him taking Boleslav through the land to go visit Charlemagne. And he spent the rest of his time as the LARPer in Rome, draining German levies and soldiers in order to secure his dream in Italy. Now, surprisingly enough, Germany had no big issue with this. There's no mention in the notes of basically of the German nobles complaining. They were kind of glad that the emperor was out of their hair. But still, to have your leader not really present in your country the entire time he's reigning, it's kind of sad. In the end, Otto III did very little for the Germans. He did very much for the Italians and for the Poles and the Hungarians. The big thing for the Poles, as we've mentioned, is that he helps establish the independence of Boleslav from the German-controlled church. Very important. For the Hungarians, he did the same thing. He, again, confirmed that the Hungarians were on their own. That's great. And then he gave them some archdiocese to work with. Again, that's great for the Hungarians. For the Italians, the important thing that he did was he royally screwed up and made them mad. He spent way too much time and effort in the region, in a region that did not want him there. And so, as his body is being taken back into Germany to be buried, not at his capital, which is being torn down at that time, the Italians are hurling insults at him left and right. They didn't want this boy king. They didn't want this boy Caesar. They wanted their own rulers. And they were quite done with this meddlesome emperor. And the Germans were happy to finally have their emperor at home laid to rest. His death, of course, leaves no clear succession line because he never had a kid. He's way too young to have had a kid. So what's going to happen next? And everyone, everyone was curious about who was going to take power. And there were many, especially in Italy, who saw this as their chance of rewriting the empire's borders. Right, that's going to be it for today's episode. I hope you did enjoy it. Again, our next episode will be a little bit sooner than uh, usual, so keep an eye out for that. Until then, take care, and I will see you next time.